Our pastor is out of town uh, this, this evening, this week. Uh, at least he'll, he'll be making his way back to sometime tomorrow. Once or twice uh, a year, he'll go off for an intensive time of preparation, sermon preparation. And so uh, that's, that he's up in Tekoa. Uh, um, putting, putting a lot of time in the Word this week, and so we want to pray for, pray for him while he is gone. He has assigned to me the entirety of Matthew chapter 18, uh, which is uh, a challenge. There are so many rich stories and biblical instruction that Jesus gives to us here. Uh, I, it's going to be a challenge to, to do it just in, a, in an overview tonight, but we're going we're gonna to do our, our uh, best, best uh, take our best stab at it. Uh, for me, the Kind of the takeaway is of the entire of the chapter is that Jesus is wanting us to have an awareness of our forgiven state uh, in front of Him, which results in a humility, which then influences how we interact uh, with the lost world and those within the within the church. And so He wants us to be mindful of our forgiven state, which results in a humility, which influences how we work, interact with people both inside and outside of the church. Awareness is a, is a key, key word for us tonight. I once took a group of college students to Boston on a mission trip. We were there to support a work of a church planner. And uh, like most mission trips, you usually have a day where you can uh, do some touristy type things. And uh, of course, I, I took us to Fenway and we got to see the Green Monster and watch the Boston Red Sox play uh, that night. And then the next day, uh, that morning we had uh, three hours or so, and so we got the group uh, to the center of Boston. They, we divided them up into groups of three or four, or whatever it happens to be, gave them a location, a destination where they needed to be back in three, three hours, and then, then sent them off. How many of y'all had a chance to go to Boston? Has anybody had a chance to? I've uh, been to Boston. All right, so one of the things that they have there is the, the, called the Freedom Trail. Did y'all do the Freedom Trail? All right, so the Freedom Trail... Uh, is this pathway that takes you by, by Boston's most historic sites. Paul Revere's house, uh, where the Boston Massacre occurred, Bunker Hill. And, and the way they have constructed the site is they have painted a red line, six inches wide. It may have been a foot wide, I can't remember. But a red, red line. You find that red line, and it takes you past all, all these places. Well, we had a... Uh, a girl in our group who was content to let somebody else do the thinking and uh, and, be, and be and be led, and and she was. And at the end of this uh, three hours of being on her own, she turned to another girl in the group and she said, "I'm just so impressed. You've never been to Boston before, but you've taken us by Paul Revere's house, the Boston Massacre, the Bunker Hill. You just intuitively know where to go." <laughs> and the girl just pointed down at her shoes. Why are you pointing at my shoes? No, I'm not pointing at your shoes. You see the red line? That's the red line. We're, we're a walk. I'm walking the red line. Oh. Well, being in a college group, which is rife with sarcasm, the girl, she had no quarter the rest of the, the, rest of the trip. She was uh, oblivious and a, and a bit, bit embarrassed. I'm not sure if you've ever been clueless before or had a, a lack of awareness uh, we often use uh, cluelessness to describe somebody who is missing the obvious. They're, they're just missing it altogether. They're preoccupied with uh, small matters uh, so much that they miss the, the big picture. Uh, that can either be where they are or what they're doing or how their behavior affects uh, someone else. This is just a general lack of awareness of cluing in. Of cluing in. When I did a Google search uh, for examples of clueless behavior, almost all of them came back dealing with bosses. 
I'm not sure what the implication is for there, but uh, uh, so uh, they all dealt with bosses. But you've seen videos of people that have been engrossed in their cell phones and they walked out either into traffic or uh, fallen. Or I've seen some where people have walked into uh, the National Mall, the, the, the water there, uh, the lake there at the National Mall. Uh, just it's, a, it's amazing what people do. Well, in our passage today, Jesus is dealing with a lack of awareness about the issue of forgiveness. And, and the songs that Tim has selected for us that, um, uh, tonight are just re- really tie in with what Jesus uh, would have. It deals with a lack of awareness on the part of the disciples. They were, they were unaware of how much they had been forgiven. They were unaware or clueless about the nature of their, uh, their sin, uh, their sinful nature, even as it existed as disciples. Uh, and they are... Uh, uh, were unaware of really how their influence on people young and old and both inside and out church was playing out. So Matthew 18 has several sections uh, whose connectedness may not be immediately clear, but, but it's there. And so let's, let's first just skim the, give a quick skim of the chapter, see what's there, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. We see the disciples uh, in the first section arguing over who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We see Jesus' instruction then not to lead children astray or ourselves astray. Then we have the parable of the lost sheep, then instruction on church discipline and church restoration, and then it uh, culminates in the parable of the unmerciful or unforgiving servant. And I believe these are all parts of a consistent message where Jesus is calling for us to be mindful of our forgiven status, to have humility, and to have those two things influence our evangelism, influence our outreach, and influence our church life. How, how do we interact uh, with each other, one with another? And so let's, let's start in with these uh, opening verses, uh, Matthew chapter 18, verses uh, 1 through 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then he called a child to him and had him stand among them. I assure you, he said, unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. The disciples, they were jostling for position here. You remember back in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus had sent out the twelve on a preaching tour. And undoubtedly, and this is just, I'm reading this into the text, but they didn't all have the same level of experience when they went out. There was, perhaps it was uh, Matthew or John or Peter that saw a larger number of conversions, a larger amount of repentance. Or it could have been uh, any of the other disciples, uh, Bartimaeus, who had the greatest number of demons being cast out. And so they were comparing perhaps internally, what contribution did I make? How is that going to be perceived by Jesus, the boss? And and what kind of position or responsibility or, or honor am I going to have in the kingdom, in the future k- kingdom? And uh, they, so they were evaluating who would merit what. In complete contrast to 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verse 6, where Peter says uh, that we should trust God with these kind of matters of positions, the instruction there is, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that He may exalt you in due time or at the proper time. 
So Jesus responded to the disciples, who's going to be the greatest, not with some algorithm for a pecking order for who's going to have position and place in the kingdom. What he did is he took a child and he placed that child among them. And this child who had made what contribution to the kingdom of God at that point? None. Uh, none whatsoever. He took a child that is dependent, a child that must be trusting of others to take care of them. And it said, unless you be converted or unless you've been changed, that, that word we get for repent, to turn from it, unless you turn and become like this child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples needed to change their tune, and Jesus was giving them a warning. You have perhaps seen in your children or your grandchildren, or you were, you're a child now and you don't have to remember too far back, uh, you've seen children bickering over how much dessert they get compared to their sibling. Can you remember this scenario? Now, their parents will tolerate this arguing only so long before a parent says what? It's mine. <laughs> it's mine. That's how it works in the cotton household. <laughs> okay. Oh, effectively, the same thing. Uh, uh, neither one of you are getting dessert if you keep fussing about who gets a bigger piece of pie or cake or whatever. And so Jesus is saying, hold on now. Let's think this through. What, what are you going to need to do? Uh, the disciples wanted to know how big a piece of cake they were going to get. And Jesus, in this example, said, you need to be worried about getting a piece of cake at all. That's what you need to be worried about because you're missing something. And you need to find some humility about yourself. You think you've done something for me. Don't, don't, you don't need to get too big for your britches. That's, this is the warning that Jesus is giving them. And he continues this teaching in, in verses 6 through 9. But whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offenses come. If your hand or your foot causes your downfall, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes your downfall, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye rather than have two eyes and be thrown into eternal hellfire. So we typically read verse 6 as someone applying, applying to someone other than us. We do not see ourselves as the person that deserves to, to be tied to a millstone and thrown in the depths of the sea. We don't ever see ourselves as actively, purposefully, intentionally leading a child astray. And I think that's, that's fitting. That's, he's speaking to villains. He's thinking to people that we incarcerate or that he says here ought to be uh, put to death. We don't actively do that. Uh, it is a legitimate question if we do not intentionally or purposefully or actively lead a child astray. Is it possible that we're doing this passively, unintentionally? And the reason I think this is a question because Jesus has connected this instruction to the previous verses. He's connected that. And so there's something in the disciples' behavior 
that he's wanting them to pay attention. Say, listen, there's something that you're saying when you're jockeying for position in the kingdom of God that's concerning me. It's concerning me about you and what you understand, and it's concerning me about how you are shaping and influencing those around you. He's saying, wake up. You can't just go about life and think that your actions do not have bearing on others. There is no action, whether in public or private, that does not have social consequences. There is no action, if, even if we're by ourselves, that it ultimately plays out. It has social con consequences. It, it affects and it influences those around us. And he's saying, be careful. We can passively lead people astray. There's a, an NBA uh, analyst, um, Charles Barkley. And 20 years ago, when he was playing NBA, he, he, he said famously, I am not a role model. And he was saying, just because I'm a good basketball player, I should not be a role model. And I, and I can appreciate that, st that statement. I can appreciate his uh, honest evaluation of himself. I cannot appreciate his naivety, though. He, he, it is naive to think that he does not have influence. And it is likewise naive for every single one of us, regardless of how well we play basketball, to think that we don't have influence. We do. And we should be careful not to be sloppy or to think perhaps because we don't have prestige that we, we've got room or license to be sloppy with our behavior, to not be tight with our behavior, maintaining our purity and our holiness and our goodness, that that does not have influence and consequences to bear. It does. And Jesus is saying, pay attention, be careful. Something as small as mine or as you think is jockeying for who's going to have position in the kingdom of God, that, that pride, ooh, that children pick up on that. And he's saying, be careful. You, you, can't, you can't leave that just sitting out there. You've you got to tackle that. You've you got to address that. So the, the gospel here, it, the gospel works in our, uh, in our justification and our sanctification. The gospel is what gets us saved, and the gospel is what allows us to grow. So the same things that happen at the point of salvation where we turn away from our sin, we turn away from ourselves. And we, we embrace God, we make Him the Lord of our life. Uh, that's what gets us saved. When we wrestle with sin after believers, when we come up to that temptation, we're doing the exact same thing. We're turning away from our sin and, and giving Him control of our lives. And so that process is, is repeated. And if we apply both of those to this, this text, I think we can come away with a couple, couple different lessons. First, for the salvation, I think this whole passage here can be a metaphor for salvation. If there is if there is no point, if there is no point at which we are having to limit ourselves, to restrict ourselves, to cut ourselves off, to hold ourselves back, if there is no point at which we are having to pull back the reins on ourselves, then the question is, have I ever made Jesus Christ the Lord of my life? Have I ever made Jesus Christ the Lord of my life? Because if I'm doing everything that I want to do, if I'm doing everything that I want to do, then man, it sure looks like I'm in charge. If I, if I'm not make any effort to cut off a privilege or, or, or desire, hmm, have I ever made? Have I ever surrendered to Jesus Christ in the first place? I think this also can apply for us as as believers. 
for our, our discipleship. And, and, and again, in, in the same way, we can make sacrifices to improve our holiness. We can make sacrifices to improve, improve our, our spiritual walk uh, with, with the Lord. Let me share an example. Um, how many of y'all know the name Dean Rusk? Anybody? A few people know the name Dean Rusk? Uh, gentleman from North Georgia. Uh, grew up in North Georgia. Uh, just a, a remarkable man. I did not agree with probably all of his, would not have agreed with all of his policies. But he was at uh, the table when so many pivotal decisions that shaped the 20th century. First and foremost, or most prominently, as Secretary of State with um, President Kennedy and President Johnson. Uh, he uh, was a colonel in World War II. He served under Joseph Stilwell over in Asia, the China, Burma, India theater there. And he shared a concern, I think, it's uh, on two ways, that illustrates this idea of uh, us creating restrictions for ourselves. He, he, as, as a colonel, as the war was ending, he was concerned about the demobilization of the Western armies because, he, because of the aggressiveness of the Russian army. It sounds kind of, kind of, kind of familiar. Uh, he was concerned about the military drawdown in the face of a Russia that would not hesitate to make a land grab, which, in fact, they did. And a half of, of Europe fell under communism for 40-some-odd years. And as he was thinking about that, it reminded him of uh, a story. Uh, and, and the story ties back, and he said, when we draw our military down, that'll be so much temptation for Stalin that he cannot resist it. So he put himself, uh, essentially the, the United States the allies were providing temptation for Stalin to, to do a land grab. So it reminded him of when he was a Rhodes Scholar, and he did a year's study as a Rhodes Scholar, which would have gotten him into England, uh, but a, a, a year's study abroad in Germany. And so he was in Berlin in 1933 uh, doing his study. Uh, he was in an urban setting, but there was, was a lake there. And he got a canoe, and he would paddle out in his canoe just to free his mind from all the intense studies and have a break. But one, one day he, he canoed and canoed and paddled and paddled, and it got up to lunchtime. So he got his canoe up on shore, went in and found a restaurant, Eight, came back out, and his canoe was gone. Well, he notified the police. I'm, I'm, I lost my canoe. Can you help me find it? Well, an hour later, the, the police come up with the canoe in tow, and they said, Mr. Rusk, we, we found your canoe. We found the thief. He has been jailed, and he will be fined. <laughs> Mr. Rusk, we're also fining you five marks for leaving your canoe out. You tempted the thief by failing to lock up your canoe. Well, he was aghast. He's like, I'm getting charged for somebody else stealing my canoe. Uh, he left a temptation out there, and I think there is a moral here for us. Paul says that while all things are permissible, not everything is helpful. Not everything is, uh, will, will build up, build the body up. Not everything builds up. So, Years ago, I chose to restrict how much media I consumed because I didn't want to pay for it. Uh, I was cheap. Uh, but I found that I, not only did I have extra money, I found that my thought life also improved. And, 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 and now that we can't afford it, we choose still not to have a lot of media for, the, for that very reason. And, and the price I pay for that uh, is not keeping up with sports as much as I like to. I have to read more in the paper than I would like to. 
Uh, but that is a restriction that I've put on myself, and, I, and it helps me. Now, that's my deal. I'm not projecting that on, 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 on you. Uh, you may have a different deal, uh, and, and it could be uh, any number of things. Uh, it could be how, how you spend your time. It could be uh, who you hang out with. If you're not editing, particularly for young folks, if you're not editing who you're hanging out with, uh, that, could be, that could be trouble. Uh, it could be our shopping patterns, our spending patterns, or our eating patterns. Uh, if there's not some form of restriction there, uh, there's probably an opportunity there for us to grow. So let us not be clueless or unaware of that our sin nature, even as believers, let us not be clueless that our sin nature as unbelievers is still active. And, and, and we need to be careful of that. The next counsel that Jesus has for us comes in the parable of the lost sheep, uh, verse 10. Verse 10, the parable of the lost sheep. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, because I tell you that in heaven their angels continually view the face of my Father in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save the lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the ninety-nine on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it, I assure you, he rejoices over that sheep more than over the 99 that did not go astray. In the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones will perish. So we have this parable. One goes off. There's 99 here. The shepherd goes after the one. What are the implications of this parable for the church? What are the implications of a disproportionate balance towards the one, the lost, the one that's going astray for the church. How does that show up in what the church talks about? How does that show up in what the church prays about? Do, does, do our prayer requests on Sunday morning in our, in our class, in our Sunday school classes, do they reflect this kind of balance, a shift towards the lost? Does it reflect what our shepherd, what our pastor talks about, leads us in? Does it reflect what pops up on our church calendar? Or not pops up, what's scheduled on our church calendar? Okay? Um, there, there is a tilt here in this passage that leans toward the loss. Now, there's no implication. It would be false to read in there that the shepherd should not feed the flock, the shepherd should not nurture the flock or protect the flock. That's implied. But there's a message, and it's clear here, that the church needs to be, have a priority on those that are not here than those that are here. Th that's the leaning that this passage is, is giving to us. And so uh, we need to be leaning that direction. A common practice in sports uh, is to discipline a player when they commit an infraction or uh, a foul, a penalty of some sort. Um, I'll ask you, Tommy. Tommy, did, would you... What kind of discipline did you do when there was a gaff on the, a mental gaff uh, on on the ba on the baseball diamond? Did did have to run. So most of the time, this uh, when it's an athletic type situation, there was some kind of running or conditioning drill that they you would have to do if you were you you made a mistake. Before my senior year uh, in high school, um, my position coach, defensive backs, safeties, and corners, he came to us and he said. You will never run for a pass interference call. You will, you will never run, which was completely flat in the face of what our defensive coordinator had told us. Uh, he said, 
Don't worry about it. You know how many pass interference calls we had that year? Not a single one. Not a single one. See, our coach knew us. He knew he needed to tilt us to be more aggressive in our, in our coverage. But we, never, but we never got out of balance. And, and I think our shepherd, our shepherd here at Beach Haven, tilts us. I have never personally been guilty of over-evangelizing or, or being over-aggressive. And I don't mean that pejorative. I mean, I, that, I have not yet made that mistake. And so we get a disproportionate balance where may, we may feel that, but it's just to keep us from being so far perhaps the other way. So there's, there's instruction here for us to, to lean towards um, the lost. Now, Jesus transitions from a concern about those that are outside the church to life within the church, particularly within the area of church discipline and, and restoration. He says here in verse uh, 15 through 19 through 20, If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two more with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he pays no attention to them, tell the church. But if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like an unbeliever or a tax collector to you. I assure you that whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. Again, I assure you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So, good old-fashioned church discipline. How many, does anybody remember good old-fashioned church discipline or what, what that might mean? I don't know if everybody's sure eating. Any, well, I see a historian in the back. I'm going to make a historian happy. Uh, my, my, my family roots are in South Georgia, or Irwin County, and I, I read a, a book published in 1932, I think, on the history of Irwin County. And at the back of the book, it had minutes from the churches or the meeting houses, as they were sometimes called. And they listed, I say, I don't say everything, but when people joined, when people left, uh, which pastors came on, which pastors left, uh, and they listed church discipline. And, and so I just jotted a, f a few down uh, this afternoon. Uh, February 25th, 1854, Mr. Jesse Hobby was excommunicated, that was the language, excommunicated for drinking too much. Richard Tucker was excommunicated for profane language on October 24, 1863. And Sibby Alexander was excommunicated for unchristian conduct uh, also on June 25, 1864. There was another man in another church who was excommunicated uh, for falsehood and having a disrespectful chat about his wife. He was excommunicated. Three cheers for that church, right? Uh, that, that's, that's good. Now, now, some people believe that church discipline is not done anymore. Uh, we, we, we think perhaps that since it's not done like this, that church discipline is not done. That is not true. That is not true. What, the best church discipline involves how many people? Two. That's right. So how many people know about it beyond those people? Nobody knows about it beyond those two people. And it, and that's, it looks, feels less like discipline as it does more like restoration and being in harmony with each other. 
And so church, the best church discipline happens when nobody even knows it. And they might even know it's called church discipline. It's, it's just happening. Now, uh, what we find is that before discipline takes place at the corporate level, almost everybody becomes repentant. Almost everybody becomes repentant. We do have instances where a couple folks can't get it sorted out, and sometimes they come and talk to a deacon or they talk to a pastor and they invite us to help, and we, we get in there and we, we have those kind of conversations. We'll almost always find the person repentant. We also find that when somebody is not repentant, they usually check out. They just quit coming to church. They, 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 get, they get too uncomfortable, and, and they say, well, I'm, I'm out of here. And it's, 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 to their, uh, it's to their harm that they leave. And you see, so in verse 17, you, you, you're, you're dealing with an unteachable spirit at that point. And boy, uh, Proverbs has got some strong counsel for those that are, are not teachable. Uh, those, uh, those that will not listen to somebody will be broken beyond healing and suddenly be broken beyond healing and suddenly and so we don't, we don't want to be uh, we don't, we don't be un unteachable at all so now we get to this, this great parable the great parable of the chapter I, I think it's the, uh, the capstone here it's the uh, parable of the unforgiving slave it's the un unmerciful servant however you have it labeled there in your Bible and it comes, on, uh, it comes in response to Peter's question in verse 21. How many times should I forgive my brother? And I think Peter, he's just digesting right now what, what Jesus has told him about church discipline and church restoration. And so Peter's trying to think, okay, how's this going to work? Hmm, oh, I, 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 we've, got, we've got a few turkeys, that I don't know, that's going to push this, this, this process. Now Jesus, you laid out three, and depending on how you treat an un, uh, 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 unbeliever, or a sinner, you might have four steps here in Jesus' restoration process. All right, so I'm Peter. All right, Jesus, would it be good if we, we doubled that, that we forgive somebody up to seven times? So he, he's doubling the process, which I think is actually a, a generous response. Peter takes what Jesus has given us. We're going to double that. I, I think that's kind of, I'm, I'm impressed by that. I'll, I'll say it that way. Well, Jesus tells him the story to put it, to put it all in perspective. And so Jesus says uh, there in verse 22, I tell you not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to sell a, settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle accounts, one who had owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he had no way to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, and his children, everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the slave fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that slave had compassion on him and released him, and he forgave him the loan. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, Pay what you owe. At this, the fellow slave fell down and began begging him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he was not willing. On the contrary, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay back what was owed. When, other, when the other slaves saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked slave, 
I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you have also had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And his master got angry and handed him over to the jailers until he could pay everything that it was owed. So my heavenly father will also do to each of you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. So a very powerful story is rich in, 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 the, in the irony and just the, the, the pompousness, the arrogance of the unforgiving servant, the, the one that did not have mercy, the, the juxtaposition of being forgiven so much but not willing to overlook so little. You know, the, the denarii, the denarii was the, the wage for a daily labor. So if you're a day laborer, you got paid a denarii at the end of the day. A talent was 6,000 denarii. And then this guy owed 10000 So instead of putting a dollar figure onto it, if you just add up the days and the weeks to the months to the years, this guy was in debt for 200,000 years worth of work. 200,000 years worth of work. Now, the other guy, he, that was 100 denarii. So three, four months worth of work. It's not 20 bucks between the guys. That's, 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 that's real money, too. But not compared to 200 thousand i think jesus is wanting us to say or observe that this guy is clueless he's clueless he is not aware of the big picture he's so absorbed in something small that he can't see what's going on around him at all and so think with me if you will this is just conjecture if peter and Jesus is telling a story. If Peter was a character in the story, as Jesus is telling a story, who do you think Peter's identifying himself with? The guy that owed a lot or the guy that owed a little? I think Jesus is, uh, Peter's initial question, forgive up to seven times, I think Peter's probably reading himself into the guy that had just a small debt. Which character do you think Jesus wanted Peter to identify with? Let's be careful to make sure we think about identifying with the bad guy in the story. And the reason being is that's where we have our best opportunity for spiritual growth. You probably heard me say something along those lines before. When we identify with the villain in the story, the bad guy in the story we probably will learn more about what's inside of our heart then. And then we can take what we have learned and surrender that to God, to sacrifice that to God, to repent from it, to be converted from it, and let God do something holy with it. This, this story, this parable, is the capstone for the chapter is not only in response to Jesus' teaching on how to restore a brother, I think it filters through, or we are to filter through everything else Jesus has taught through this story. Everything else. And, and so, working backwards to front, the restoration story. So how does the interpretation of somebody who said, you do not remember how much you've been forgiven, how does that affect what we do when we go to restore a relationship with somebody? Any impact on our tone? 
any impact on our posture? Or, or do we go perhaps with a little bit more of humility rather than self-righteousness? Even though I've been wrong, I've got, I, can, I can do self-righteous. Should I be more humble? Would we take the posture that Paul tells us to, to do in Galatians? To go and gently restore, gently restore a brother. And Paul also says, and take heed lest you fall into the same temptation yourself. Don't be clueless, Paul says. Don't be clueless. You've got a sin nature that's very much susceptible to the same temptation. How does this parable affect our searching for the one? How does does this parable affect our understanding of of, of searching for the stray? We've been forgiven so much. Does that that build a a greater urgency within us as we invite our one? Not just to church, but invite them to also consider Jesus Christ. Does this parable change how we think about our influence our, our active and our passive influence on children and those around us? Does it make us grateful for getting into heaven in the first place? Jesus, I think, wants us to hear all these things in this parable. And so it's, it's ultimately a reminder to remember how much each of us have been forgiven. And, and it ties back to the opening verses of the chapter. We should be glad that we're just getting in the door, that we're just getting some of the cake and, in, and just getting in the door should radically change how we look at people, how we treat them, how we speak to them, how we seek for them, how we go after them, how we restore them, how we love them. Let us not ever forget what God has done for us and let us be forever changed by it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we thank you for your great sacrifice. And Father, we do remember, and it's very much like uh, the Father who said, I believe, help my unbelief. We, we do remember. But Father, there's so much that we need to be reminded of yet again. We need you to come and we need you to stir, stir our minds, stir our hearts. We, we know that your posture is not to, to beat us down, to say, oh, just remember what you were and you're no good You have no desire to beat us down, but Father, we can benefit from remembering the grace and the goodness that you've extended to us. And Father, when we have, we pray that you would allow us, you would transform, that knowledge would transform us to love those around us with greater passion, with greater sensitivity, with greater care. Help us towards that end, dear Lord. We pray all this in the name of your Son's name. Amen. All right. See you all Sunday.